this morning, I'll share the first two verses from 1 Peter chapter 1 with you in relation to one of the Reformation themes, which was sola gratia, or by grace alone. And uh, so this all relates to by grace alone. Uh, it's also the second letter in TULIP, the five points of Calvinism, uh, where you deal with the whole aspect of um, where God's unconditional grace, and uh, where he unconditionally chooses certain ones unto salvation. And, of course, you have irresistible grace that's part of the tulip uh, makeup as well. But let me begin reading from God's Word this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, I'll read down through verse 5 just to give us the context of the first little bit of 1 Peter chapter 1. But Peter's writing to a group of downtrodden believers in what would now be modern-day northern central Turkey. And uh, they're undergoing the beginning pains of persecution and trial and tribulation as uh, the empire of Rome begins to turn against them and as the pagans in the area areas where they find themselves are also becoming more and more hostile to this early church. And so Peter writes in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, let's just ask God to bless his word this morning. Father, again, we're thankful for all that we have sung this morning. We're thankful for the words of those wonderful hymns of praise to you. We thank you for the lives of those who have gone on before us, who reclaimed that which was originally part of the early church through the Reformation that took place through the likes of those like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and many, many others. Father, we thank you for the example that they set. Now we are thankful for the words which come to us this morning from the Apostle Peter through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he tried to encourage those who were beginning to endure the shame of persecution. And Father, I pray that these words that we look at this morning would 
be a reminder to us that they are just as appropriate and relevant for the times in which we find ourselves today. And Father, indeed, we are reminded of so great a salvation because of so great a Savior. Now may the words from Peter not rest easy upon us, but may they be driven deeply within our our minds and our hearts and our wills. And may it be for your honor and your glory and for our earthly good. And we pray it all in the name of Christ alone. Amen. Well, we're looking at words that were penned from a man who would ultimately become a martyr for the faith not too long after he penned these words. Within two or three years of being used of God to write 1 Peter and a little bit later 2 Peter, Peter ultimately gave his own life for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the cause of of his kingdom. But before he was taken and martyred him, he wanted to encourage those who were beginning to feel the brunt of Rome's shift in attitude toward the church. And of course, as Rome shifted in their what had once been tolerance for the church, they were now becoming more and more hostile. And that, of course, had the knock on effect of of local municipalities beginning to follow Rome. And so the the heat was on. The heat is being turned up during this time, and so he's writing them to prepare them for what is to come. And he's telling them how they can courageously confront what is beginning to happen. And he does so by reminding them of who he is, first and foremost, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he's writing to tell them who they are as blood-bought believers and saints in Christ. And thirdly, he's writing to tell them what they have as a result of their salvation And then he ultimately reminds them of where they are going. This is not the final resting place for those who are in Christ. One man of that era who lived in the second century was a believer by the name of Polycarp. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he exemplified the very traits and attitude Peter conveys to those to whom he is writing. And ultimately, when Polycarp was brought before the pro-council of his day, and he was told to renounce Christ, or they would feed him to the beast, Polycarp essentially said, let them loose. I will not renounce Christ. And then he was threatened by the proconsul that he would be burned at the stake. And Peter said, fine, light the fire. In fact, this is what he said. These are his words as translated into English. 
Thou threatenest the fire that burns for an hour, and in a little while is quenched. For thou knowest not the fire of the judgment to come, and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why delayest thou? Bring what thou wilt. Ultimately, he was faithful unto the very end and became a human pyre for the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you endure such hostility? How do we endure the encroaching and increasing swells of persecution that are forming Well, first, Peter tells us. Peter begins by preparing his readers for what has already begun, and he knows it will only intensify in the days ahead. And in these first two verses, he recounts for them five reminders that help the believer in Christ adopt the proper mindset toward external trials Tribulation and suffering. What are those five reminders that we can learn from these first two verses? Number one, the nature of the apostolic message. Its authority. Number two, the nature of God's sovereign choice of the believer. Sovereign appointment to a new identity in Christ. Number three, the nature of their new identity, that they are aliens, sojourners, pilgrims. Fourthly, the fourth reminder is the nature of their placement in salvation. In other words, their divine assets. Once you are placed in Christ, what are the assets that we have in Christ? And then number five, the need for ongoing grace and peace, or the attainment of daily grace. Let's begin with the first reminder. It is this, the nature of the apostolic message, its authority. Notice how Peter begins very simply, as Paul often did. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Christ. We don't have to guess about the authorship of 1 Peter because Peter tells us. This is not like the book of Hebrews where there is speculation. Was it Paul? Was it Barnabas? Was it somebody else? No, Peter's name is right up front, right out of the gate. And of course it goes without saying that this is the same Peter that we meet in the Gospels. The same Peter whose brother Andrew brought him to Jesus Christ in John 1.42. He was called to be a disciple of the Lord. We know that as part and parcel of his character, he had impetuous devotion to the Lord. And this is the same Peter who so often allowed his mouth to overload his brain by uttering some inane, out-of-place thing at the most inappropriate time. He did have a gift and a knack of putting, inserting both 
feet in his mouth simultaneously at times. This is the same Peter who didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. And he did an about face when the Lord told him, then you have no part of me. This is the same Peter who cut off the ear of Malchus on the eve of the Lord's crucifixion, but then went on to deny the same Lord that same morning. Not long thereafter, this is the same Peter who was in a boat just a ways offshore of Tabga near Capernaum. And he saw the Lord on the shore and he bailed out and ran to the Lord. And the Lord gave him another speech and he said, Peter, feed my sheep. And yes, this is the same Peter who preached that sermon in Acts chapter 2 that saw 3,000 souls come to Christ in one day. He had become a troubadour for the faith. And so he is rightly identified here as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is not a self-identification. This is an identification that the Lord granted him. The very one who wrote about how to conduct oneself as a believer when taking enemy fire himself becomes a martyr for the faith. So what do we know about this apostolic authority? Well, it's based on Peter's unique identity. He's called Peter, Petros, the stone, the rock, or Cephas in Aramaic, meaning the same thing. All of which portends that he would become an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the term apostle has a general meaning and it has a technical meaning. The general meaning just means one who goes forth with a message. In that sense, every believer in Jesus Christ is an apostle. But here, the technical sense is used, speaking of that unique apostolic authority granted only by Jesus Christ. Now, the importance of this is simply this. Peter isn't pinning mere suggestions or platitudes to warm the cockles of their reader's heart. This is more than good advice. Rather, it is an authoritative message that comes down from on high. In other words, when they read this first sentence, What they're in essence hearing is, this is the word of God, hear it. Now many claim to be apostles in the technical sense today. They are imposters, they are frauds, they are hacks, they are liars. It is true that we are all called to be apostles in the general sense. We are all sent out with the gospel message. But none of what one may say, unless it is from the word of God itself, that has been rightly divided, speaks with authority. What Peter writes 
is attended with that apostolic authority. All of which is why the church of Jesus Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians 2.20, is built upon the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Peter is part of that foundation. The apostles were the foundation. We're a little bit past the foundation. We're nailing on the last roof tiles as we speak. And because what Peter shared with his original audience was gilded with apostolic authority, it is just as authoritative for us today. There is much that we can glean and learn from what Peter wrote to those downtrodden believers in Asia Minor. It is the revealed Word of God. Further, based on the nature of Peter's apostolic message, it's based, look at, look at what it's focused on. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter's not drawing attention to himself here. He, he's pointing everyone as an apostle to Jesus Christ. So the focus here is not on him, not on his uh, apostolic authority so much, but rather on the Lord he knew personally and so well. And all throughout the epistle, Peter is captivated with the Lord, with his life, with his death, with his resurrection, with the fact that he is coming yet again. This is a strong implication that Peter recognizes the authority that attends this epistle is a derived authority and it's not rooted innately in him. And so Peter reminds them of the nature of the apostolic authority that points to Jesus Christ. A second reminder that Peter gives his readers is this. The nature of God's sovereign choice of the believer. Or sovereign appointment. Or, as Calvinism says, unconditional election. Peter says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen, who are elect. There is some debate over the placement of the term election. Rather, it sh whether or not it should precede aliens or whether it comes at the end of, the, of that verse as the New American Standard reads. I am of the opinion that it could well stand as an adjective before aliens so that you could read it this way as, as chosen aliens of God. And so the word election here no matter how you take it, means the same thing. It occurs 22 times in the New Testament. And in every single solitary instance, it has reference to people chosen by God from a group of others who were not chosen. 
And because they are chosen to be included among God's people, they are recipients of great blessing and privilege. They enjoy saving grace, not just common grace that extends to both believer and unbeliever alike. It rains on the just and the unjust. What are the characteristics of this election? And when you talk about election, it does raise the heckles in many people's hearts. I can think of no other doctrine in Scripture that has caused more heartburn, more heartache uh, as a pastor over 30 years than that of election because of those who reject it and want to argue and debate. There is little debate. Scripture is very clear. But let me give you five of the characteristics of divine election here as Peter would have used it. The first is this. Divine election is pre-temporal. What do we mean by that? It's anchored in eternity past. It's not an afterthought. I'll just give you one example. There There are other examples, but... Romans chapter 8 is probably one of the better known portions. Romans 8, and everybody loves to start up in in, uh, verse 26 of Romans 8, where he says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, what the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's where many stop. They read that verse, they stop, and they never continue on with the context. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of those verbs and the way that they are written and tensed in the original Greek takes it all the way back before time itself began, before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. This all precedes that. All of this. And what he does there is he highlights the, the key aspects and elements and facets of salvation. The whole package of salvation reaches back to eternity past. It's not as if Genesis 3 happened and God says, whoops, got to go to plan B. This was all done in eternity past. It isn't an afterthought. That is why Paul, in verse 31 of Romans 8, can then launch forth into that great hymn. What 
Then shall we say of these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, everything that Paul says in that great hymn from verses 31 following to the end of the chapter is rooted in the fact that salvation is pre-temporal in eternity past. God decreed it as part of his decree in the past. And therefore, it is never subject to the sands of time. And what this indicates to the believer is this, that once you are in Christ, you are eternally secure and assured of eternal life. Now that is not an excuse to sin to the hilt. Paul deals with that in chapter Chapter 6 of Romans. The point is, divine election is pretemporal. It is anchored in eternity past. A second characteristic of divine election is this. Divine election is by sovereign prerogative. In other words, it is God's choice. God sovereignly chose Israel from among all the nations of the world to believe in and be his own special possession. Not because they were smarter, not because they were greater, not because they were stronger than any other people, but for his own sovereign purposes, he chose them as his own precious precious jewel among all the nations. And here in 1 Peter, the term is used for Christians who are chosen by God for salvation. In fact, if you turn over just a few pages past Hebrews to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10, there we, we see another example of this. Paul told Timothy there in 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. The human recipient is passive in this sense. So divine election is by sovereign prerogative. A third characteristic of divine election is this. It is never merited by its recipients. It is always the active work of God. God is the active agent. No man plays any role or part in his or her own own salvation. Man is the object of God's sovereign choice and therefore passive. He chooses them not because they were sanctified, but so that they might be sanctified and holy. It's not because of works. No one can boast. Nobody can say, my record is better than your record. I've done more good things than you have done. I still remember those embarrassing days in high school when in gym class we would be chosen uh, for various teams and act for the sports or activity that we were playing on that particular day. And when it came to the three big sports in America, football, basketball, or baseball, I was utterly useless. And I would have been just as useless at cricket or rugby and the, or soccer. 
And I was often one of the last ones chosen. That is because the choosing of sides for these activities was usually predicated on athletic merit or special friendship. In fact, the captains of those teams would oftentimes argue over, you take him. No, you take him. Well, I took him last time. It's your turn to take him this time. But when it came to dodgeball, I was often one of the first ones picked. For whatever reason, I was a demon on the dodgeball court. I even had youthly ambitions of being a professional dodgeball player until they told me there was no dodgeball, professional dodgeball circuit. And of course, when it came to endurance sports like running or something of that nature, I was in my own element. But in every instance, human merit played an important role in being chosen for that side. But this is the complete opposite of the way God chose those unto salvation. And so divine election is never merited by its recipients. Fourthly, divine election assures the believer's perseverance. It's innate to the word. It's it's implied. This election, because God is the active agent, is the guarantee, the seal of approval for the believer's eternal security. No election, no security. In fact, that is the P in TULIP. Perseverance of the saints, or eternal security, as we normally call it. I got saved in a particular realm of the Baptists, independent Baptists in the U.S., and most of them are what we call whiskey Calvinists. They're one-fifth. The only part of, of the five points of Calvinism that they believe is the perseverance of the saints, eternal security. But there is no eternal security if God is not sovereign in salvation. As John MacArthur likes to say, if you could lose your salvation, you would. The doctrine of eternal security or perseverance of the saints is directly tied to election. One sure result of election is the world's enmity. What did Jesus tell his disciples in John 15, 19? If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. The fifth characteristic of divine election is this. Divine election does not eclipse human responsibility or accountability. There is still human responsibility. This this doesn't obviate the need for the gospel. The gospel must still go forth. There must still be a response. 
One of the ways that I used to explain it in the early days of this church when I was trying to explain all of this to Denver and Shawton and all of those were part and parcel of the early church, uh, Pete and others. I would always give them this illustration taken from J.I. Packer where he, he talks about a rail, he said it's an antinomy. And it's like a railroad track. And you're standing on in the middle of a railroad tie, and as you look down, you see two separate rails. One could be the sovereignty of God and salvation. The other is human responsibility on the other side. But as you begin to lift the gaze of your focus and you look down that railway line, what ultimately happens is if you look far enough down the horizon, those two rails become one. When we think about the sovereignty of God in salvation and human responsibility, we think they are contradictory because we are looking down at two separate rails. But from God's perspective, the both merge into one. That is what keeps me from going crazy. And you say, and one of the reasons many people do not accept this teaching is because they don't understand it. Well, join the club. I don't fully understand it. I have a small measure of understanding of it. The secret things belong to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And so none of this obviates human responsibility or accountability. Look at Romans 9 strongly speaks about salvation rooted in eternity past as God's sovereign choice. But then you flip the page to chapter 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The same God who ordained one unto salvation is the same God who ordained the means of salvation. And so the two work together even if we can't reconcile them in our own small, puny little minds. There's a third reminder that Peter tells his readers as he moves from God's sovereign choice in salvation to this, the nature of their new identity. They are aliens. They are exiles. They are sojourners, chosen sojourners of God. And the term alien here uh, speaks of dispersion. Those dispossessed in a country or from their, their natural country, now living in another country where they are exiles or refugees. They are temporary residents. They are foreigners. And it is estimated that in the first century, there were one million Jews inside Israel itself, but there were anywhere from two to four million Jews in the diaspora in the surrounding countries. No doubt there were Jews, saved Jews, in the churches in the region that Peter addressed in his epistle. 
Peter is using the term here in a very non-technical way as a metaphor referring to those believers, both Jew and Gentile alike, that were now spiritual aliens and pilgrims in a hostile earthly environment. And so their citizenship in reference to this world is temporary. As a result of salvation by grace through faith alone, those who are the elect of God have an alien nationality and are a displaced people. Regardless of what your passport or identity document might say, ultimately, if you are in Christ, you are a temporary resident, a transient, waiting to go to your final destination. In fact, if you flip over just a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, we read about heaven's hall of heroes here. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. It's nothing new. It goes all the way back to Abraham himself. There are echoes here of ancient Israel in Egypt as exiles and strangers. As one commentator so rightly put it, this is an epistle from the homeless to the homeless. Further, the citizenship here that Peter references is referencing their heavenly home. As Paul said in Philippians 3, I'm pressing on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's moving on to that heavenly home. This is only a temporary resting place. Christians are people who belong to another land and another people. We are only temporarily residing with people to whom we do not belong. And it is common for foreigners who are exiles to be held in contempt by those who are native to the land where the exiles dwell. There are millions of displaced people in South Africa today from other various African states. And look at the hostility that many of them have had to endure because the government won't enforce its own immigration and naturalization laws. I remember in the early days here at Loving Hope Bible Church, we had a young man named Sylvester from Mozambique. And Denver and Gaynor would remember him well because they used to bring him to and fro to church. He was beaten up and mugged more times than I can remember. I don't have enough fingers and toes to count those times. He eventually ended up dead, laying in the gutter in Tableview someplace, and to this day, we don't know exactly what happened. We had another man from the Congo who eventually moved to Dubai because of all the threats and hostility by locals that were aimed at him. We call this xenophobia. Now translate that into the spiritual realm. And this is what Peter is talking about. 
if they hated the Lord of glory, what do you think they will do to those who name the name of Christ and dare to take up the cross of Christ and follow him daily? What do you think all of the PC speech and hate speech laws are all about if not to silence biblical Christianity? At its very core, those promoting such hate God for the same reason that the things happening in Israel right now are happening. It's because according to Psalm 83, the other nations hate Israel and they hate Jews, but they ultimately hate God. And they can't get to God, so you go to those that you can get to who name that name. Think it not strange. Peter is writing this epistle with the united theme and focus of instructing believers how to exist. To be in the world, but not of the world, as we say. In a non-Christian society. He is informing us how to live in a hostile society and overcome that society by being adequately prepared for the oppression and the suffering. We can't control everything that will happen to us, but we can control our responses. The truth is that some of us will eventually forfeit a job, a business opportunity, an educational opportunity, or some other opportunity simply because we are elect strangers on this earth and will have to stand on biblical principle rather than to concede to the nonsense of the current world around us. Fail to use somebody's preferred pronoun? That's a knock against you. Fail to promote all of the, the garbage that's being promoted on whatever front today? Question climate change? Announce that you're pro-life? Or some other biblically held conviction? And watch what happens. Fail to virtue signal with the world and you're in trouble. Thomas Constable said, the fundamental problem of every social ethic was for Jesus' dis disciples from the beginning an acute problem. So think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that may descend upon you. Peter is detailing how to live in such a society and signaling that those in Christ have no final resting place in this world. C.H. Spurgeon rightly notes, Since God has chosen you to do this, do not give way to the world, but gird up your loins to contend with it. And contend we must. And so the nature, we have the nature of a new identity, chosen by God. This is not a self-identified state. That leads to the fourth reminder, and Peter re writes to his readers the nature of their placement in salvation. Their divine assets. What are their divine assets? 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. These are the benefits. The benefits of salvation that serve to enable one to continue marching on in the midst of the battle. This is the fruit of so great a salvation. There is a divine placement and regeneration at the moment of salvation when you repent and it results in a predetermined relationship, separated living, obedience to the truth of the gospel, and an alignment with the new covenant promised back in Jeremiah 31 and 32 and Ezekiel 36. First, part of our divine assets, a predetermined relationship according to the foreknowledge of the Father. This modifies everything in verse 1. It's directly related to it. They are chosen sojourners of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And the use of the word foreknowledge here has overlap with election. It's used again in verse 20 of chapter 1 in 1 Peter. For he was foreknown, speaking of Christ, before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The word does not mean that God had an awareness of what will happen to you and and how you would respond, and so he chose you on that basis. In other words, God, according to foreknowledge, is not looking down the corridors of history to see how you or I would respond to the gospel and make his choice based on that. It clearly means that there is a predetermined relationship that reaches all the way back to eternity past with God the Father. And so it simply means here that God planned it all beforehand, not that he observed it before. So the use of the word foreknowledge is used very distinctly. It's God's sovereign choice and determination. We get the English word prognosis or prescient from this this Greek word that is used for foreknowledge or predestination here. It's used in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It's used in Acts 2, 23. And it speaks of God's covenantal favor for those whom he has chosen. Let me quote Wayne Grudem on this. He explains foreknowledge this way. It's knowing people with a personal loving, fatherly knowledge, which suggests God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. This implies that their status as sojourners, their privileges as God's chosen people, even in their hostile environment, were all known by God before the world began. 
And thus, in accordance with his fatherly love for his people, such foreknowledge is laden with comfort for Peter's readers. What you're going through, what I might be going through, is not a surprise to God. He knew it before time began. And he will minister to us through that. And so, one of the divine assets of our placement in salvation is this predetermined relationship. Secondly, another asset here is a separation by the Spirit of God. For he says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The objective of election and foreknowledge of God is salvation, which comes to the elect through the sanctifying, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, who ultimately indwells us and seals us onto the day of redemption. MacArthur puts it this way. The Holy Spirit thus makes God's chosen holy by setting them apart from sin and unbelief to faith and righteousness. At the moment of salvation, it is declared that you are sanctified. That you are sanctified and will be sanctified. There's a past, a present, and a future element to sanctification. Yes, we are declared sanctified at the moment of salvation, but then there's a present tense reality to that where day by day we are to grow in grace and mature in our faith and ultimately live and seek to live holy lives. The believer isn't just cleansed from past sin, but is cleansed to ongoing lifestyle and that expresses a new relationship to God through practical holiness. And ultimately, when he gets to verse 13 of chapter 1, Peter begins a series of 34 imperatives or commands that are to be lived out, but it's all rooted in the fact that ultimately at salvation we were separated by the Spirit of God. But you can't live out these commands unless you are rooted in this salvation. So that is the second asset of our Salvation. We're separated by the Spirit of God. Thirdly, another asset is an obedience rendered to the gospel. He goes on to obey Jesus Christ. There is an initial obedience at the moment of salvation where we confess and forsake our sin, but then there is the ongoing nature of daily obedience to Christ. There's a placement that takes place when you're saved that results in listening and submitting to the word and the will of God. It's a change of heart, a change of mind, a reversing of course where the unregenerate attitude of rebellion and self-will ultimately finally leads to compliance. Of course, obedience in this life is always incomplete, isn't it? Because there are the vestiges of remaining sin. But this is why we daily must confess that sin, because he is faithful and just to forgive us that sin. 
1 John 1, 9. This is why we are to keep short accounts with the Lord. A fourth divine asset of our salvation is this, a ratification of the new covenant through the blood of Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Sanctification, obedience, sprinkled with the blood are three different ways of describing initial salvation with the idea of then living out that salvation on a daily basis. The imagery here reaches back to the book of Exodus and I don't have time to go there this morning, but you could go back and read Exodus 24 and verses 1 through 8 there, where after the the covenant is made with Israel out there in the Sinai Desert, after they'd crossed through the Red Sea and God gave began his covenant with them in Exodus 19, and then he gives them the stipulations for that covenant in chapters 20 through 23. So in chapter 24, there is a ratification of this covenant that God made with the ancient Jews. As part of that ratification, animals needed to be slaughtered. And that blood was sprinkled not only on the altar, the burnt offering, but it was sprinkled on the people by the priest, by Moses. That was to ratify that. We have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ as a symbol of his death, burial, and resurrection. It signals entrance into the new covenant with an obedient response to the gospel and the sprinkling of blood. And so it is a symbol that we are now in this covenant. It leads to obedience and signifies responsibility and privilege. It is interesting, worth noting, as we talk about these divine assets of salvation. Notice, we see God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. The triune Godhead at work and salvation. The Father who planned it all in eternity past. The Spirit who affects the plan through regeneration and sealing. And Christ who is the Redeemer himself. One God, three distinct persons who are all co-equal, co-substantial, and co-eternal, yet with three separate roles in salvation. Finally, Peter gives them one more reminder, and it's this, the need for ongoing grace and peace. There is to be the attainment of daily grace. He closes out these two verses. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. There is always a need for more daily grace. For the peace of God to be shed abroad in our hearts. As we face an increasingly hostile world in rebellion against God. We need an increased measure of both peace and grace. 
We mustn't be satisfied with what we have, but we must seek and ask for more. So how does the believer respond to a hostile world and rebellion to the Lord and those who follow him? Do we just give up? Do we just park it and go into neutral? No. We need the reminders of so great a salvation and so great a Savior. We need to be reminded of the nature of the apostolic message, the authority of God's word. We need the reminder of the nature of God's sovereign choice of the believer that there is a sovereign appointment that we don't fully understand. We can't fully recognize that in our pea brains. Nevertheless, it's true. And therefore, he will not let us go. We also need to be reminded of the nature of our new identity that we are aliens and sojourners and exiles, pilgrims on the pilgrim pathway just passing through. Further, there is the reminder for us of our placement in salvation, that it comes with divine assets. That unique, predetermined relationship with the Father being set apart by the Spirit, Obedience unto Christ and the sprinkling of blood. And finally, there is the need for ongoing daily grace and peace. And so it is that those believers who understand the nature and the basis and the benefits of their salvation predicated in God's electing love have the tools and the weaponry they need to resist the Christ-denying culture and societal norms that surround us all. We have a unique status as blood-bought believers, not because of who we are, but because God for reasons known only unto him, has chosen to lavish us with his abundant saving grace. Someone well said, for people facing persecution, it must have been extremely comforting to realize that although they were rejected where they were living, they did not belong, they did belong somewhere. Their hope was to travel in that direction. Let me ask you this morning, which direction are you traveling? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these encouraging words from Peter, for these simple reminders of the necessity of salvation, the origin and the source of so great a salvation, and the wonderful daily benefits of being in Christ. Father, we don't understand it all, but we can stand back and marvel and give you thanks for what you have done. Lord, I would pray for any that might be here this morning who do not know Christ. The only command that they need to heed this morning is to look and live to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and lay it all at the foot of his cross.
Father, for those of us who are saved, may we be encouraged by what we have read and heard from Peter this morning. And Father, I pray that it would enable us to go out and to walk in your ways and to walk in your will. Despite what the world might think, the world might say, or the world might do. Be our portion and guide in all of this. Seek a, a, help us to apply these principles, these wonderful truths to our daily lives. That your grace and your peace might be shed abroad in our hearts despite hostilities against us. And Father, we pray these things in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.